It is the fourth Sunday of Easter, and every year, each and every year, no matter how loud I feel, each and every year, the fourth Sunday of Easter is Good Shepherd Sunday. And Good Shepherd Sunday takes passages where the shepherd theme or the shepherd image or the shepherd role or type is throughout Holy Scripture, and it brings it together, and it shows us how Jesus Christ is the perfect fulfillment of this Good Shepherd, both in the past, in the present, and in the future. Now, we encounter these Jews talking with Jesus, who is also a Jew, FYI, on the Temple Mount in the Feast of Dedication. And why is that important on this Good Shepherd Sunday? Well, the Feast of Dedication is also called today, sometimes, there you go, Hanukkah, with the proper uh, guttural, there you go, Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the Feast of Dedication of the Festival of Lights, and it remembered that in 164 BC, so about 164 years before the birth of Jesus, there was another Messiah, a ruler of the Jewish people, Judah Maccabee. And Judah Maccabee helped lead this, what we call the Maccabean Revolt, after Judah Maccabee. And he rode into Jerusalem right around the 25th of December in the month of Kislev, the Hebrew month. And he took back the temple because this Seleucid emperor, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, are you following me so far? So many names, so many numbers, so much laughter. It's all together. He had put up a God that looked like swine in the most holy place in the temple. And this was the abomination that causes desolation. So Judah Maccabee, like a hammer, goes in, takes that altar down, reclaims the holy place for God's people, and the Jewish people, the people of Israel, live happily ever after. No. Even though he did ride into Jerusalem on a donkey to shouts of Hosanna, Like a Messiah, he was not the Messiah, the Christ. Tell us plainly, are you the Christ? Now, I give this elaborate background about Judah Maccabee because I want you to notice his name, Maccabee, his nickname means the hammer. Now, somebody who's nicknamed the hammer, you would not think to be particularly companionable or friendly or someone who is willing to walk alongside those who are in his group. The hammer is probably somebody that gets to the point, takes no prisoners, always gets his way, achieves, etc. That's the kind of guy the hammer is, I'm guessing. I did not do appropriate background research, so please, somebody correct me if I'm wrong. But I bring all that up because the image of a shepherd in Holy Scripture is different from a hammer. A shepherd is both an authority and a companion. Let me tell you what this dictionary of biblical theology says about a shepherd. He's both a leader, a strong man, someone that can defend his flock. We remember that David defended his flock from the lion and the bear, and he did that in God's power. So he's a strong dude. He's got a hammer side to him. MC Hammer references are now floating through my head. But he's also a companion. He's gentle. A 
A shepherd knows his flock's condition, adapting himself to their needs. And so today, as we behold the good shepherd in, in all of these passages and the good shepherd's under shepherds, here's what I want you to take note of. Listen to these words. The good shepherd is an authority and a companion. On behalf of his people, the good shepherd works in power and love, and so do his under shepherds. And he demonstrates himself in strength and devotion to his sheep. The good shepherd is authority and companion. Let's start with that. And so the Jews here, these unbelieving fellows, come to Jesus and say, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? Jesus says, hey man, my works have spoken for themselves. That's plainly. But notice what he goes on to say. I've done these works in my Father's name, verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. Now being good Jews, these men would have heard this and realized, whoa, We're supposed to be the flock, and he's supposed to be outside. And Jesus does a quick switcheroo on them and says, you don't know me because you're not part of my flock. And then he starts illustrating what is his flock and who is his flock. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. The good shepherd is a companion. He walks alongside. He's the same one that says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest for your souls. He says, come alongside me and be yoked to me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. But you don't know me because you're not in my flock. You don't hear my voice. Verse 28. I will give my flock eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. What greater power is there on the face of the earth than to be able to say those words? Verse 28. This is the key verse of this particular passage. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Earlier, Jesus had said, the thief comes to steal to kill and destroy, to destroy. Same verb that Jesus uses here in the passive tense in verse 28, they will never be destroyed. The thief comes to take away everything, to take away life, to take away possessions, and to completely obliterate. But I have come to give life. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. They will never perish. They will never be destroyed. And so we see this juxtaposition in Jesus. He speaks to his sheep. His sheep know him. They follow him. But he also has power to give eternal life. Our thoroughly Christianized American ears may need to be reminded of the power of this statement. Some of us, we've heard the gospel from when we were little bitty kids. And the fact that Jesus can give us eternal life can be lost on us. But more so, it can be lost on us that he speaks to us. That we can hear his voice. 
that he walks with us, that we're not alone no matter what we're walking through, no matter what we're going through. So the good shepherd is authority. He is companion. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Not only is the good shepherd an authority, the ultimate authority, and a companion walking with us, his under-shepherds demonstrate his power, the shepherd's power, in strength, excuse me, in power and in love. Now remember, last week we had the restoration of Peter. Do you recall Peter denied our Lord Jesus three times? Do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know him? No, no, no. And in love, in this third resurrection appearance recorded in John 21, Jesus sees the disciples, or the disciples are out fishing. They re- realize it's Jesus. They run to the shore. Awkward silence. Simon, son of John, to Peter. So he takes Peter back to the very beginning of his relationship with him in the same place at the Sea of Galilee, doing the same thing, fishing. And he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And remember last week we talked about that at the very base of what I love you means, it's simply saying that I want you to exist. It is good to me that you are. And he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Is it good to you that I am, that I exist? And each time that Simon, son of John, Peter, answered, you know I love you, Lord, Jesus did what? He gave him an assignment. Or more importantly, he gave him a vocation. He gave him a calling to fulfill. Feed my lambs. Not manage my corporation or fill in the blank, but feed my lambs. Such a practical thing, isn't it? Peter, be a shepherd under me, the good shepherd. Simon, son of John, do you love me? You know I love you, Lord. Tend my flock. Take care of this flock of mine that sees my works and that believes in me. And again, he asks him, Simon, son of John. And by this time, Peter's grieved, perhaps almost as much as he was grieved the first time when he went away weeping bitterly after he denied Jesus. And he said, you know, I love you, Lord. You know all things. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. So Jesus takes this mantle, and I'm I'm referencing the stole here because this is this is a garment, it's a vestment, it indicates office, it indicates whatever it indicates, but it also indicates the yoke of Christ, the yoke of the shepherd. And Jesus takes this yoke that he had and he gives it to Peter, feed my sheep. And so we spy in on Peter. He's just healed a man, Aeneas, on the coast in Lydda, and now there's another example of Peter behaving like a shepherd, an under-shepherd of the good shepherd. There's a woman, Tabitha, or Dorcas, who has fallen ill. She dies. And we almost have a direct, or a very clear allusion to 1 Kings 17, where Elijah heals the widow's son. Puts everybody out of the room. Elijah laid himself on top of the boy, but Peter speaks to Tabitha. Tabitha. Arise, and she's revived. Where does Peter get this power? Has Peter cornered the market 
on some psychological thing? Has he learned the seven highly effective habits of a first century apostle? No, it's just from Jesus, period. What's the big deal with Jesus? Well, he's the good shepherd who is an authority and a companion. And his under-shepherds express power to his people. Power for the early church. Power for the church today. The power that God gives to his people, to you and to me, is no different than the power that we read about in the book of Acts. Period. Do we believe that? Intellectually, maybe. It's difficult. This is the power that our Lord Jesus gives, the good shepherd. But notice, too, this expression is an expression of love. These disciples are brand new disciples, people who are fearing for persecution. And God expresses his love through the ministry of Peter as he revives Tabitha. And it sets Peter up in a peculiar position because he stays in Joppa. And I've seen exactly where this place is. He stays in a house of Simon the Tanner. And the house, Simon the Tanner's house isn't there anymore, but a church is. And it was the first place when we were in Israel about 18 months ago where a, a, the church bell rung for morning prayer and I realized, oh my gosh, this was an actual place where actual miracles occurred where the good shepherd was leading his people and still today is leading. Now, I want you to, to realize that Peter and the rest of the apostles were commissioned by Jesus. And each one of the apostles commissioned other people. And they commissioned others and others and others. And this is what we call the line of apostolic succession. So that when you see a priest, they are someone who has had hands laid on them to be an under-shepherd, not the great shepherd, the good shepherd, but to be an under-shepherd who's had hands laid on him to be an under-shepherd, who's had hands laid on him to be an under-shepherd, and so on and so forth. And that's how the church has been governed, spiritually. So my job as a pastor is a calling. My job as a pastor is weighty. And unless I rely on the power and the love of my good shepherd, unless I hear the voice of my good shepherd, unless I seek the demonstration of his authority and seek his companionship, then I have no authority with which to lead you. Listen to this quote about the good shepherd's authority in our lives. His authority is not disputed. It is based on his devotion and love. In other words, the good shepherd doesn't have to wield his authority like a hammer. It's based on his devotion and love. Did you know that Jesus Christ is devoted to you? Do you ever think about that? That the living God, our Lord Jesus, sitting at the right hand of the Father, all-powerful, the one who was present at creation, the one who died for your sins and for my sins and for the sins of the entire world, is devoted to you. Listen, our world is full of stupid stuff, full of lies and things that distract us. But if that doesn't rouse us, if that doesn't make us think we have something to give, just like Peter would say earlier in the book of Acts, hey, silver and gold I don't have, but what I give to you, I say to you, stand up in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise and walk. 
We have something to give. We have power and love to give that has been given us, that is exercised for us right now by the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd demonstrates himself in strength and devotion. So we see the Good Shepherd acting in the, in the, in the moment on the Temple Mount with his disciples, encountering the Jewish leaders. We see the under-shepherd, Peter, bringing a woman back from the dead. And then we see in the future, the shepherd who was the lamb that was slain, that is now a shepherd. And we see this amazing picture. And do you remember the flock? You're not of my flock. That's why you don't hear my voice. That's why my testimony isn't good enough for you. Look at Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number. Pause. Do you remember the flock? We're looking into the future. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. Do you remember the flock? It's gone from this small group of people to a great multitude that no one can number. How indicting to hear the words, you're not of my flock. You don't hear my voice. You don't follow me. But how innumerable is the number of the flock? And they're not just Jewish people. They're from every what? Nation and language and tribe and tongue and people. Now let's go back before the flock. Here's the flock. Let's go back here to Genesis. Do you remember the promise that God made to Abram? I'm going to give you seed. You're going to have Children, I'm going to give you land. And through you, all, what? Nations, tribe, languages, tongues, people will be blessed. Here's the seed. Here's the land. Here's the blessing. Here's the flock. Now, what kind of shepherd does that? It's amazing. I want to skip ahead, though to a specific demonstration of his love, his strength and devotion. Look at verse 15. Speaking of these who are clothed in white, verse 15, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Even unto ages of ages, even into eternity, 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 future, who is the good shepherd? Jesus, the lamb. And what does he do for these who have died? What does he do for all of his people who trust in him, those who are in the Father's hand, those who are in his hand, those who hear his voice, those who have received eternal life, who have not been stolen from, killed, or destroyed, but those who will never perish, what does he do for them? They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Every provision is provided for. 
Verse 17, and he will guide them to springs of living water. You have the picture of the shepherd in your mind, perhaps of the Judean countryside, rocks and hills, bare land. And it's amazing. In Israel, you can be driving along by the Dead Sea. In Gedi is a spring that starts up in these hills and it just flows down. All of a sudden, you're in a place of total desolation where nothing can live where if you go 100 yards and you let this water into your body from the Dead Sea, you will no, not get sick. You will die. But instead of here to this water of death, we see this bubbling brook falling over rocks. And we hear the sound rushing. And why does rushing water bring us so much peace and comfort? And it falls and it's in a pool and it's cool and it's refreshing. This is the kind of water that our good shepherd leads us to. But not only that, but it's the water of life, the living water, the water which if we drink it, we will never thirst again. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In this world, you will have many troubles, our good shepherd says. But take heart. I've overcome the world. He demonstrates his strength and his devotion to us. He is good. He is great. I want to talk to you briefly and show you how Psalm 23 is not only a metaphor for what is spiritually happening, but it's a metaphor for very practical things. That the shepherd leads us to still pastures. The sheep has to have the pastures to eat. Leads us to quiet waters, to drink. Prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. Anoints our head with oil and our cup is running over. All of these things we've talked about are spiritual realities, but they're also practical realities. Some of them we experience completely and fully. Maybe we've been healed in a particular way. We've experienced God's redemption or deliverance, but some of them we will not taste fully or completely until we taste those everlasting waters. As we follow the good shepherd, as a people, we have to remember those practical things of how God leads us and guides us and he feeds us. And as we do that, I want to make sure that you know that you can always turn to him in the moment. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to pray and we're going to turn to him and ask him to lead us and guide us. And we're going to pray for three things. So if you'd like, close your eyes. And the first thing we're going to do is to rest in the shepherd's love. Spirit of God, we beg of you that as restless as we may feel that you would pour out the good shepherd's love on us and that we may rest in it.
And as we rest in his love, we want to secondly hear his voice. Lord Jesus, we want to hear your voice. Speak to us. And lastly, we want eyes to see, to watch him move in power. Lord, show us where your power is at work in hidden ways, in ways that we've been blind to see, or we've not been willing to see. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you lead us in both, in everything, in every sphere of life. You give us our daily bread. When we ask for bread, you don't give us a stone. How much more will you give us your Holy Spirit? Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our King of love, our good shepherd who is devoted to us and an authority and a companion. In your name we pray, amen.